Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. An idiom is a figure of speech that uses a group of words that has a meaning that you may not deduce from each individual word. For instance, the conclusion, it's up in the air. He is getting cold feet or she deserves a seat at the table. And today's guest is named Cicely Simpson. And in her wonderful new book called Pull Up Your C-H-A-R-I-R, or Chair, she was inspired by Shirley Chisholm, a former New York congresswoman who once said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And if you find yourself in that situation, Cicely poses some very big questions for you. And one of them, are you ready to take a seat at that table? Because what she means is, are you ready to be part of a conversation and that you have as much say as anyone else and you have deserved and or earned a seat, but you may not know what to say when you get there. Our guest today is going to help you with that. And what she says, right, pull up a chair, get ready to learn and apply five applicable action strategies that can drastically and radically take your self-leadership skills and ability to lead others to the next level. And CHAIR, C-H-I-R, is an acronym for champion, honesty, adaptability, impact, and regrets. And it's really interesting how through that seat, sometimes we bring our regrets with us, which are nothing more than learning opportunities to determine how to improve our seat. So Cicely Simpson, author, brand new author for Pull Up That Chair, speaker, coach, and just a wonderful human being. It is a pleasure and welcome to A Climb to the Top. Likewise, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You're my my pleasure. Well, tell us, I I think before, I certainly want to talk about the book because there is a compelling narrative built into the book and a very easy and accessible model by which people can develop both the mindset and the skill set. But before we get to that, Cicely, just give us your background. Where'd you come from and how did you get to where you are? Sure. Yeah, I'm from uh, I'm from rural Tennessee. <laughs> so, uh, beginning my career in Washington over 20 years ago was the real sort of uh, my first chance to take my seat at the table. Having gone to law school before that and practiced law briefly before moving into politics in Washington, and I've spent the last 25 years at the table uh, in both politics and in business. So I start out from a very, you know, rural area that most people in Tennessee have not even heard of, let alone people outside of Tennessee, and have managed to really apply these strategies to work my way up through law school and through a legal career, through a political career, and now a business career as well. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell my story, and uh, thank you for asking. And yet, while the expression of went to law school and became a lawyer for a short time was your expectation to be and to be a practicing attorney. Absolutely. I went to school to be a prosecutor mm-hmm. and I had a job in L.A. County. I got an offer to be an assistant D.A. straight out of law school. 
But you know what? I realized uh, Southern California is in a very expensive place to live. And back in the early 2000s, uh, assistant district attorneys did not make but about 20, 22,000. So pretty tough to live in Southern California on that uh, on that salary. So I came back to Nashville and still practice law here before going to D.C. Yet you had mentioned very early on in the book and before we get to the details of the book, you never expected to be into politics, government. How did that transition occur? Sure. So when I moved back to Nashville after leaving law school in California, I mean, Chuck, you know how it goes. You run into people you haven't seen in a while because I am actually you know, from Tennessee and went to college here. I ran into some old friends who were running a congressional campaign for a state senator who was running for Congress. And we reconnected, you know, old times. How are you? How are you? And in the midst of the conversation, the person said to me, I'd love to get you involved in our campaign. And I said, well, what, what, what would I do? And they said, I don't know, you know, maybe just, you know, help the, um, you know, help the candidate just with some research and talking point, you know, just stuff that you probably got used to in law school. And I said, sure. Yeah, I can, I can do that. It'd be good to just to meet some people and get, you know, reintegrated back into, uh, you know, things happening in Tennessee. So I joined the campaign on a part-time basis, helping out really with anything the candidate needed. And the funny thing about that, Chuck, is that was election night, 2002 November 2002 and literally he won he was the only democrat who won a republican open seat that year and he won it by less than a point and well, he cr- cr- credit sicily for being a part of that campaign <laughs> timing is everything but he looked at you me picked a winner i did and he said to me that night do you want to go to washington and I was like, why would I ever want to go to Washington? And he said, well, have you ever been? And I said, no, you know where I'm from, small town, Tennessee. No, I've never been to Washington. He said, well, come with me. And I said, well, what would I do? And he said, I don't know. We just won. I'm just figuring this out. But I wanted to be part of my team. And I said, I don't know. And he said, try it for six months. If you don't like it, you can come back home. And that was in 2002. And I've been in D.C. ever since. Was either he suggesting or your mind, what do I do with my law practice? You know, actually, I thought the six month, yeah, sure, I'll go to DC, I'll try it, it'll be fun. And then I'll come back and, and practice law, continuing practice law. Right. So again, I never, it, it just didn't hit me that politics would be something that I would spend my career. And I thought, sure, I'll check this box. It'll be fun for a few months. I'll come back to Nashville, reconnect with the folks at my firm and, uh, you know, continuing practicing law. So no, it never occurred to me, this would be an opening, this would be a door opening that would lead to many more doors opening in my career, but it just wasn't my mindset at the time. Did you stop practicing law? I did. Yeah, I did. Once I got to Washington and look, everybody knows it, but you know, I was what, 24, 25 at that time. Once you get the political bug and you're really in the middle of everything happening in the country and you're in the Capitol every day and you're, I mean, you just get the political bug. And so once I was there, I thought this is the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. And I sort of left um, my, my legal leanings um, behind, but then I picked them back up later on in, in my career. And we, we can talk about how I've now sort of incorporated my legal training back into my my representation of businesses in Washington. I definitely wanted to go there because I think it's it's got to be interesting what it is you learned as a prosecutor. But before we get to there, this job that you were now moving into, what was it? It was to be a legislative director for Congressman Lincoln Davis, which is the number two spot in a congressional office. So the job really is I, I again, no legislative experience, no political experiences of working on the campaign, but I was in charge of leading and establishing 
his legislative agenda since he was a freshman member of Congress. So basically, all the legislation that went through the House of Representatives or the Senate, I was responsible for briefing him, making sure he knew what he was voting on, my recommendations for how he should vote, and basically managing all pieces of legislation that uh, Congress would be looking at during my tenure in his office. So I stepped into some pretty big, uh, pretty big job. And thankfully there was a guy down the hall, Chuck, who's still a good friend of mine to this day. And he said to me, you have no idea what you're doing. Do you? I said, I actually don't. And he said, let's go grab a cup of coffee and I'll tell you how to be a legislative director. And he's been a good friend ever since. Well, that, that is so cool. But although one could argue you're out of your comfort zone, I have to believe three years of law school, time as a prosecuting attorney, you are practicing law, you are enforcing law, you are legal jurisprudence every minute of your day. To be able now to help a Congress person to synthesize, distill the legislative agenda, I'd imagine that must have, there must have been some intuition on that. Of course, yeah, the yeah. legal training, obviously, uh, what we're taught in law school is absolutely to take cases and, you know, complicated set of facts and distill them very quickly. Right. Um, uh, you know, bite-sized pieces that the jury or anyone else can understand. So yes, that training uh, served me very well, believe it or not. <laughs> right. But here you are now no longer prosecuting or defending. You are not in a courtroom any longer. You're not even preparing for a case or an argument. You're now in the service of an individual who needs your help. Let's describe then, let's cross the bridge from legal skills to now this position. How did it cross over? You know, they're really, um, certainly you learn uh, leadership skills and skills in law school that translate. But honestly, being in Washington, being in a congressional office, leading a staff, that was all very new to me. That was the first time I'd led a team. Uh, right. It was the first time that, you know, I had managerial responsibilities, but also had such a big portfolio of responsibilities. And really, I think that experience, while law school was instrumental, really working on the Hill, Chuck, really it started to form my leadership style, inform the way I chose to conduct that leadership style every day in terms of how I manage my team. But it also taught me how to show up. What do you do when you're, you know, when you're in those meetings negotiating legislation with other members of Congress or their staff? How do you show up for yourself? How do you start to really uh, take on an identity as a leader, certainly in that sphere, but obviously others see you that way as well? Right. And, and you, you, we now bring politics into this day and age. What we see is very binary. What we yes. seem, what we seem, and I don't know if we've lost the art of compromise, but we seem to be in a world that needs more middle ground compromise. I would imagine that must have been a challenge for you to try to figure out while you take sides, being open-minded to the other points of view. Was, was, was that fun, opportunistic? What did that feel like? All of the above. <laughs> right. <laughs> Of my training as a prosecutor is to anticipate the other side's arguments and be right. able to defeat those because you've anticipated those. So yeah, you're right. In DC, now listen, this was 20 years ago. So they're actually, it was a very different place than yeah. what it is now. There actually was compromise. We worked with both sides of the aisle. I worked for two Southern Democrats. We call them blue dog Democrats, Lincoln Davis and Jim Cooper, Jim Cooper, who's still now in office represents Nashville. And they were that middle. They were the blue dogs were the moderate Democrats that everybody wanted to work with. So I immediately stepped in, Chuck, to a role where 
I work with the Bush administration. Right. Uh, it was it was very common for us to work with the Bush administration on uh, commonalities and issues of interest. And so really being able now to work with Republicans, work with Democrats, House, Senate, and to be able to anticipate arguments, know what's coming, to be able to be able to be prepared to address those, but also to find that common ground. We don't do that anymore uh, in D.C. Yeah. It's all about the polar opposites and the middle continues to diminish and shrink. But in those days, and I've, I've sort of seen the evolution of this change, indeed, it was a meeting of the minds and we all got in a room and we figured it out. And that is where I think the skills of negotiation and uh, legislating came from my experience in law school. Well, I often think about when I read the news or I watch it, I think about Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of those principles was seek first to understand, pause for dramatic effect, and then to be understood. And yet sometimes for those of us not involved in politics, many of my friends and I wax on and we begin to wonder, is anyone listening to each other? Are they seeking first to understand and then to be understood? It just seems much more of a battleground. Is that how it has evolved? That's how it has evolved. But listen, you bring up a great point. Even uh, clients that I coach right now uh, who are different stages of their career, the, thing, the one thing I tell them is the three best words that will be your best friend in your career is help me understand. Right. Help me understand will diffuse confrontation. Indeed. Help me understand does seek for you to understand and be understood. Those are three very powerful words that are very much underutilized. Uh, in our vocabulary and in our careers. But yes, it has evolved to the point where there's not a lot of listening to each other. There's not a lot of seeking to understand nor be understood. Right. And right. That, um, that evolution, and in some ways diminished evolution, is why we find ourselves in such a binary, you're right, you're, I'm wrong, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, and, and just this sort of, we're always in, in battle. And I'm hoping that we find ourselves in a moment right now with the Ukraine situation where we're finding common ground and we're finding that common purpose again. And I'm hoping that lasts for a little while, not just the crisis of the moment. Yeah, when we, we, we certainly, what we see outside of the realm of politics is what often feels like a zero-sum game and that yeah. there's winners and losers not in between. So we thank you for your service and for, for the enthusiasm of trying to find the middle ground, which leads us to your book. And before I get to that, though, let's, let's, let's draw some conclusions that led you to wanting to put your work into the universe via a book. You made a transition from a, a lawyer to, to being on a legislative team where you are now doing something you probably never planned or trained for. You're leading people. You are seeking to inspire, to persuade, to provoke. All of those things are on display yet they don't necessarily teach that in college and law school. What were you learning in that frame of inspire, persuade, and provoke that led you to become a leadership coach? Well, and that, that journey did start on Capitol Hill because, and one thing I, I learned and I'm continuing to learn, Chuck, throughout both my congressional um, career, but also now translating over into the corporate America, which is where I went when I left Capitol Hill, right. very much meeting people where they are, that persuasion, mm -hmm. listening, that provoking. Everyone comes at things with their own biases and their own points of view. Yeah. How you, <laughs> you meet people where they are, how you as a leader can convince someone to get behind a vision or an idea or a project that took years for me to learn simply because you're right. I didn't have any formal training. And I find now even 20 years 
later, so many people, Chuck, I coach and they're buying the book, haven't had that formal training either. We all were just sort of put in these spots and said, okay, go do your job. And it was like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, is that it? That's it? That's all you're going to give this me? This job that? description is, I'm not doing what the job description said. In fact, I don't know what I'm doing. I know what it said. That, that's that's right. where you were. Well, and that's what happened with me at Duncan Brands. So when I left Capitol Hill and went to work for Duncan Brands, the corporate parent of Duncan Donuts and Baskin Robbins restaurants in 08, we were in the middle of the financial crisis. Was I had been there for four months when the financial crisis started. And of course, there's no on-the-job training for you know, the, the economy being in crisis. But you're right. Over the course of the seven and a half years that I worked for Duncan, Chuck, I started out with one job and I was hired to do one thing. And then my job expanded to four things. And so now I was not only responsible for representing the company before Congress in the White House, but now it was governors, it was city councils, it was international governments where restaurants were being built because at that time the restaurants were in 68 different countries. Right. So I started out with one job description and very quickly found myself with four different job descriptions, but I took advantage of that opportunity. And that is where these leadership strategies for this book really started to form. How do I advocate for myself that I was hired to do one thing and I ended up doing four? How do I put myself forward as a thought leader, someone who clearly is bringing value to the table? I want my seat at that table. Now let's talk about how we get it. I'm demonstrating value every day. Let's translate that into a real conversation of be, me being part of the leadership team. Even though I didn't have the title, I was doing the work. And so that's when I really started advocating for myself and really understanding the power of how you show up for yourself. And when you take your seat at the table, what you do when you get there, that that Duncan experience really started to form, um, inform and form what I'm currently doing now as a coach and as an author. Well, then you are independent on your own and no longer part of Duncan brand. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm now right. the founder and CEO of my own lobbying and communications firm. Okay. And I'm practicing in the end of these strategies into practice every day because now I've got to prove my clients the value I offer to them, representing them in Washington. So still living it and uh, and breathing it every day. Well, let's get into then pull up your C-H-A-I-R. As an author myself, and I want to give a plug to our publisher, Advantage Media, who has been excellent to me and to you as well, as I understand, a great experience. So a shout out to Advantage Media. Thank you for all you've done for me as well. This is a great opportunity to bring two of your authors together, and what a wonderful opportunity this is. Throughout the course of your coaching practice, this chair thing came to you, whether it was Shirley Chisholm's inspiration or otherwise. Before we even get into the book, help us to understand the origin of chair as a metaphor, but also the acronym and what was in your mind before you sat down to write this. Sure. So over many years, whether I was in on Capitol Hill or working for Duncan or even working uh, representing the restaurant industry at the industry level, Chuck, I've always been asked to give speeches of my career. How did you advance? What did you do? How have you held these roles, especially being a woman of color and often a young woman for some of these roles, people would often tell me you're a lot younger than the last person who was in this role. So I took all that information and actually it was March 12, 2020, the day before the world shut down. And I was giving a speech to a, a bunch of CEOs and I was this question, how have you done what you've been able to do? And I've been inspired by Shirley Chisholm's career for a long time. And I said, you know what, here's how I would sum up my career. And I gave that quote. No one gave me a seat at the table. I brought my own chair and made my own 
every single job I've had, and I've been wildly successful at it. Now, I've had a lot of tried and true errors and mistakes, and but I've made triumph over challenge. And someone, they heard that, a couple of people heard that speech and they heard that quote and they were like, that's a powerful quote. And they came to me afterwards and said, do you coach? And I'm like, no, I, you know, yeah, <laughs> I do now. <laughs> I've mentored people for 25 years. You know, I don't call that coaching. They're like, well, no, that's coaching. Do you coach? And a series of conversations took place thereafter where I already had this chair model in my head that I wanted to share these strategies with people. But those affirmations of, will you help me in my career? really told me this is a powerful message that others need to hear. I discovered it on my own and I've, you know, made my own way. But now that I understand the value of that, how can I not share that with somebody else who's seeking the same path and the same advice? You know, I, I and I love that. That's how you came to it. But what was interesting in the frame of your book, you use CHAIR as an acronym for some pretty important attributes. Can you explain C H? A-I-R, and I really want to underscore the R because I wasn't expecting that when I read the book. The first four made perfect sense. And if you looked up on LinkedIn, what, what, what do they ask for in the top five soft skills? Adaptability, creativity, all those things, champion yourself, but not that. So let's get to C-H-A-I-R. Tell us, our listeners, what that stands for, what that means to you, and let's finish up with the R. Sure. I'll very quickly run through those. Yeah. The C camping yourself. Now, people usually think the C is for confidence. And I actually think confidence is not enough. Confidence is where you start, but you can be confident and never open your mouth to actually champion yourself and advocate for yourself. So this champion yourself is the idea of you are actively creating the conversation about what you bring to the table, your value proposition. So it's more than confidence. It's actually the act of self-advocacy and self-leadership. Great. The a is for honesty because anyone who's been in their career long enough has gotten some tough feedback, feedback about blind spots they may have. Perhaps they don't understand how they're being perceived, what I call how you land on people. You have to have moments of honest self-reflection and self-honesty to understand where can you be better? How can you improve? None of us are going to be perfect. But the progress that we seek and understanding the self-reflection is a very key piece of self-leadership. You can't lead yourself. You can't lead others until you lead yourself. Um, the A is for adaptability. And I tell people, this is the one soft skill I call core competency that no one teaches you, but you're judged on every single day. Because every look time. at what's happening around you. And if you're not adaptable, then very much that undermines your credibility. Yeah. The I is for impact. Again, people think that's imposter syndrome. I don't believe in imposter syndrome because when you've done the work, you're not an imposter. You belong at that table in the seat that you're in. So impact is if you champion yourself to get to the table, impact keeps you there. Impact every single day, bringing impact, how you add impact, how you bring that and show up. That's really the secret sauce that's going to keep you at that table for a very long time to come. The R being regrets is the one that you're right, surprises a lot of people simply okay. because people who come to me for coaching, people that I've talked to since I've started this coaching program, it comes out in conversation. Now, before I started the coaching program, the reason why R was so important to me is because that is the mantra by, within which I live my life. I have no regrets. It's why I've been able to pursue and make changes from law to politics, politics to business, and now business to being a CEO. My question to myself, 
Chuck, is if I'm good, am I going to regret it? If the answer is yes, then that makes the decision for me. I'm going to pursue whatever opportunity it is, not knowing where it may lead, but knowing that if I don't take the chance, then I'm going to regret it. To your point, we bring our regrets with us. The opportunities we miss, right? 100% of the shots, yeah. you know, you miss is because you didn't take them. Right. And I find that regrets is a, can be a very powerful motivator for missed opportunities that now galvanize you and motivate you to act, not to miss those opportunities again. So ending with the regrets piece is a nice bookend to the self-advocacy of championing yourself because we often look back and have so many regrets of when we didn't champion ourselves. Yeah, and I really liked as I was reading it and I looked at the primacy effect in the C of the champion and I looked at the recency effect in the R. At first, when I looked at the acronym, I thought oh, maybe it's risk. I didn't know what it was. I was so open-minded to see what you were articulating. And when I read the regrets, I said, wow, this is cool. Most people don't do that. When they're writing a, in, about their books, they're talking about all the positivity. But I think this is experience is a name we give to our mistakes, but our mistakes are only valuable in the self-honesty and the reflection of how to avoid them. Because none of us, and I think where we all come from, we're not afraid to make the mistakes. We're afraid of not learning from them. And what I loved about your book was the reinforcement that if you don't learn from them, you're just repeating the same thing over and over again. That's what I got out of it. Is that what you were going for? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it is that recognition that you have a choice to make. You can choose to live in regret or you can do something about it. And so, yes, you, you captured that very well. I'm glad that that came, uh, that came across. So, uh, uh, as my, you know, what I was trying to convey to all the readers who hit regret is regrets can be crippling for those who choose not to learn from those mistakes. And it's one of the reasons why, as we talk about championing yourself, a very powerful component of that is lessons learned. What are the well, lessons you, how do you bring those forward? Yeah. We had on, on our show several months ago, it was a gentleman named Avram L. McKees, and he is the CEO of a company called CLMBR Climber. In fact, there's a machine right, right behind me. And he founded, after founding a dog food, a pet food company, he founded this chair. But it was interesting how he spoke. Like with you, he had an interesting twist and turn evolution. But he talked about he worked in a nursing home. When he was in college and he people were unfortunately in the last stretches of their lives and it was sad but it was an interesting lesson and i wonder your take on this he talked about people had two regrets one i didn't help more people and two i didn't take more risks and i was reading your book it was interesting the regret to me was tied to the decision or indecision when opportunity intersects with preparation in some form the indecision of regretting not taking an action. Your book felt very much, if ever there is a choice between action and inaction, what do you have to lose? Otherwise, you would regret that inaction. Absolutely. And I'll tell you a quick story to sort of illustrate that. The regrets mantra started for me. I was in law school. Uh, what many people don't know about me is I have a debilitating chronic disease called sickle cell anemia. It has been with me since I was born, but Chuck, when I got to law school, the very first, I mean, listen, this is my dream. I wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight years old, right? I was going to be the first African-American female Supreme Court justice. Well, guess what? President Biden chose somebody else, but that's okay. okay well, you still might have your shot. <laughs> the next one. <laughs> Three months into my law school career, and I start having debilitating chest pains. 
debilitating drop to my knees. I can't breathe kind of trespass. I didn't know what was going on. And I went to the doctor and he said to me, you know what this is. Your body can't handle the stress. You're not like everybody else, Cicely. You can't go to law school and do what everybody else does. And he said to me, you have a choice. It's your health or law school. And I looked at my parents and I said, if I don't do this now, I will regret it for the rest of my life. And my mom and dad said, then you need to go ahead. And we can, deal with the, we can deal with the fallout of that. That is the, that is the decision or indecision. Think of how my life would have changed had I chosen the other path when that moment presented itself. Well, Think you, of what may you, or may not be right now. That indecision is consequential in so many ways. Well, you may have another book here because I think what many of us do and what we do for a living is we ourselves and we help others to challenge and sometimes defy the conventional wisdom. Because if you had fallen prey to that wisdom, your life would be in a different place. So no regrets. So you're living, you're living by example and leading by example. To our listeners, then, where do they find you and the book? Sure. The book uh, is available. It is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, if you want to download a free chapter, go to my website, cicelysimpson.com. There's a free chapter of the book you can download there before you buy it. But they can find me on my website or I'm on all social channels. Have a YouTube channel, Chuck, with tons of career tips and strategies. I go live every Monday and Thursday offering free strategies. Hey, come join me. I'm, you know, we're talking about communication or we're talking about action or fear or failure. So I provide a lot of resources for folks on my YouTube channel, but also they can find me across all social channels and my website as well. Fantastic. And to all the listeners, if ever you are considering finding a seat at the table, bring in a chair for the seat at the table, but what do you do when you get to the table? Cicely is here to help. Her book, Pull Up Your Chair, was a wonderful read. It is actionable. It was accessible, very easy to understand. And sometimes the hardest things that we do are the simplest things. And if we just develop the mindset of keeping it simple and then our decision model every single day, leading us to champion, to be honest, to be adaptable, to have impact, but mostly to ensure that we never regret the actions that we're taking. Cicely Simpson's book is for you. So Cicely, thank you very much for coming on to A Climb to the Top. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for a great conversation. You're welcome. And to our listeners, thank you always for tuning in. This is Chuck Garcia. We are grateful for the opportunity to be able to bring this kind of these wonderful guests to you. We thank you for all of your comments. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.